If you turn your Bibles to, Calvary, to uh, chapter 12 here in the book of, yeah, to Calvary Chapel, some new book. It's like, it's in the second hesitation section. <laughs> if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, as we continue, we'll pick up the first 13 verses tonight. And the message I've entitled, Paul, a Faithful Fool. When you look at the Apostle Paul's life, by any measure in a human sense this was absolute insanity Paul would have probably been deemed uh, with some form of mental illness for for the life that he lived as we finished up chapter 11 we saw these 26 named things that had happened to the apostle Paul and seemingly as far as scripture is concerned in the book of Acts nearly one right after another. None of you are going to sign up uh, to take a job where you're going to be beaten, flogged, shipwrecked, and then not paid on top of it. The Apostle Paul, from a human perspective, one could say was a fool. From God's perspective, he got to see things and know things that so far as the Bible says no other person on earth that actually came back to tell about it got to see. So Paul, a faithful fool, and we'll take these first 13 verses. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Lord, for the incredible life of the Apostle Paul, we can't wait to meet him. Lord, to think that we're gonna get to talk to him when we get to heaven after we get done spending a few thousand years just talking to you. Lord, many of us are going to want to hunt down the Apostle Paul. Ask him some questions about how did he endure the ministry? How did he live his life in such a victorious way? And we pray tonight that you just give us a little glimpse of this amazing man. Bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 here in 2 Corinthians 12 as we... Round out, we're getting close to the end. So, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And so, he he reminds us that he's been forced into this situation of having to defend himself and prove his apostleship. And he says, really, at the end of the day, it's it's kind of ridiculous. It's fairly foolish in light of who the Lord is. And in light of who we all are as human beings, so far are his ways above our ways that we cannot know them. God exists in a completely different realm than we do, much less have the, do we have the ability to describe who he is and what he looks like and all of those things. But Paul is about to describe an event uh, that is probably best deemed a, a mini-rapture. And in fact, that actual word that we would translate there in 1 Thessalonians 4 is used here. For I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And of course, he's actually referring to himself, and we'll figure that out as we take some time digesting this passage of scripture but Paul 
was snatched away by force. Those two English words caught up as a single Greek word, harpazo, uh, the same word that we derive our word raptured from, or rapture, is a Latin word, rapturo. So in your Bible, uh, it was initially translated from Aramaic to Greek, Greek probably to Hebrew and Greek and possibly Aramaic and then to Latin to German to English. And so the word rapture, though itself is not in your English Bible, if you had a Greek, the Greek Bible, the word would be harpazo. If you had a Latin Bible, it would be rapturo. So Paul was rapturo. He was snatched away by force. He was caught up to the third heaven. And he repeats himself just to make sure everybody understands it. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. How he was caught up, he uses the same word again. Snatched away by force, suddenly, into paradise. He uses the Greek word paradiso. He heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. And when he says not lawful, he means biblically, spiritually, not lawful. And I would remind you, if you study a little bit about the Jewish people, when they write out in English God, they do not spell his name in its completeness. They put G hyphen D. And the reason being is as a Jewish person, you are not to utter the name of God. Hence the use of the name Yahweh, that tetragrammaton, this four-letter YHVH or YHWH, whichever way you want to pronounce it or write it. But it was a name for God that was not able to be uttered. And so the Hebrew people would simply make reference to it's the sound that you make when you breathe in and breathe out. It would be like, Yah. They wouldn't try and say God. When they used Lord, they meant master. And so Paul was caught up. What he saw, he was not able to tell us about. Of such a one I will boast. And so he's told us he suffered all of these things to his body, to his mind, in his life. He says, look, if that's not enough for you, I'll not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And so he begins by speaking to us a little bit about his own life. And when you read this passage at first glance, there's some very specific details that the Apostle Paul Uh, uses here and he basically says look I don't know how I got there I have no idea actually where I was whether I was in the body or whether I had an out-of-body experience anybody ever had one of those dreams that's so real you you wake up and you're like whoa praise the Lord that wasn't actually true you know what I'm saying you know especially when they you know if you're a parent you know when you have one of those dreams about your children or something and something happens and you wake up and you're like almost in shock 
and sweats coming off your brow. The Apostle Paul is saying, it was so real to me, I can't tell you whether I was actually there or whether it was an out-of-body experience. All I know is I saw stuff I can't tell you. That's how amazing it was. And he tells us that that place was paradise. As he says this, he he refers back to a a period of time that I believe is referencing Acts chapter 9. And, of course, we know that the Apostle Paul is converted on the road to Damascus at that time. But 14 years ago is when that happened. And it was there that he also saw the Lord. Remember, he is kicking against the goads. He's on the road to Damascus, and a voice calls out and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, who are you, Lord? And so Paul was having kind of, if you will, almost a little bit of a flashback to that heavenly scene where he saw the Lord, and there's some additional details that are so great that he describes it as being caught up to the third heaven. And for those of us that have been around a while, you might say, wow, man, what a trip. You know, he's like, where did he go? It's like, the the details of this, as as he uses this term, harpazo, he's... He's speaking to a time that we ultimately can relate to there in First Thessalonians. It happens before the tribulation. That's Revelation chapter 6 or chapter 5, if you include a couple of the details in 5, but primarily chapter 6 to chapter 19. There's this incredible period of time. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. That Directly before that, the church disappears. It's snatched away. And it says there in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15 to 17, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who were asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Harpazo, raptured, snatched away together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And there's the difference that uh, makes this the rapture instead of the second coming because this event happens in the heavens. It does not happen on the earth. The Lord comes back to the earth. This happens in the heavens. And so as, as that event happens... There's this mysterious event that happens in the life of Philip, and he's moved from to this this place um, called Astosis, which is really Ashdod on the Philippine coastline. He was he was in one place, and he's instantaneously somewhere else. And the idea behind it is translation. It's like you're one place, and then you're another place. And so he says paradise, or he says heaven. Uh, the Greek philosophers believed that there were seven levels of heaven. And we, we do not know to what Paul is referring to here. We, we can make some guesses. We can postulate. We can come up with a hypothesis. Uh, some have thought that the levels of heaven are described, and I happen to subscribe to this view, that the levels of heaven that are described here, uh, there are three. We have what we would call the terrestrial heavens. The heavens that are directly above the earth, that's where the birds and the planes fly. We, we call that the heavens. Uh, there are the celestial heavens, the places where the stars hang, the places where the planets rotate, where galaxies are. And then there is a third heaven. And that third heaven is the location 
of God at this present time. It's where he dwells. It's where the throne room of God is. It's where the Lord Jesus is sitting right now at the right hand of God the Father. There is a place called heaven. And it does appear that the Apostle Paul was taken to that place. Now whether that place is outside of our galaxy, that is highly likely. Whether it is another dimension of space and time, also quite likely. If you're a fan of things like string theory, that does kind of bear a little bit of credence here that it could be another dimension that might even exist within our space and time, but it's completely invisible. But Paul was taken wherever God's throne is. He was snatched away by force and instantaneously put in the presence of God. Now, let me tell you why I don't believe that this was some type of event to where Paul was sleepwalking. Because if it was simply the throne room of God and existed outside of the known universe and he was traveling there, it would take him 13.7 billion years traveling at the speed of light. So he was instantaneously translated to some place that he could not himself describe for two reasons. One is he had no words to describe it. It was mind-bogglingly amazing. And the other was it was unlawful. So the unlawful part tells us that he was in the presence of God. That he actually got a glimpse, a shadow, a shadowy view. This trip, I believe, was a real trip. Some Some believe that Paul was on a trip, like as in, you know, he was out of body, out of mind. But he gives us enough details that we can equate it to what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 8 or or John as he begins his letter uh, writing about the revelation of Jesus Christ in in Revelation chapter 1. They experience the same thing, this mysterious mixing of real things that we can identify like doors, uh, gates, foundations, a crystal stream, a tree of life, a rainbow around a throne, All of those things you see in Ezekiel, you see in the book of Revelation. There are things that you and I would know, hey, that's a throne, but it's so insanely beautiful that we can't fully understand it. It's beyond our understanding. Wherever it was, the interesting thing to me is Paul felt right at home. Paul felt right at home. He wasn't afraid. He just simply said, it was so amazing, I can't tell you about it. Now for me, that is like the definition of awesome. Because I'm an experiential guy, I like new things. So thinking that I have never seen actually anything like heaven makes me want to go there, amen? It doesn't actually look like anything we've really seen in our world but it has enough similarities to like if there's a canyon like the Grand Canyon, that it's infinitely better. If there's a valley like Yosemite, it's infinitely better. If there's a beach like a Kapalua, it's infinitely better. It's just beyond, it'll look like something you know, but will be so far above what you understand that you'll go, oh, that was worth waiting for. Amen? Check out a few notes from the trip here. Paul Paul speaks about how this was. He said he was caught up into paradise. 
again, snatched away, taken by force, moved from where he was. It was a journey. And you and I, just exactly in the same way, exactly as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, one day in a twinkling of an eye, we're going to be caught up as well. Uh, The same truth is really in view that we already saw in the second letter in chapter 5. One day to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's a sense that we know where we're going, but we don't know how we're going to get there. We, we know that we're going someplace amazing, but we don't know exactly what it's going to be like. And so to describe it, he uses the Greek word paradisos. Uh, and in doing so, he, he's saying, I was caught up to some place that the Hebrews would have equated to the king's orchard or the king's garden. That's what the word was. It, it was like a, a park of parks. It was a place that uh, actually is used to describe the same word as used to describe the Garden of Eden. It's a place that we've heard about. We kind of understand what a garden is, but it's God's garden. It's a place that you and I, with our finite minds, we just simply can't understand it. And so Paul, as he's relating to some of the things that we, we know from the completion of Scripture, he's saying, look, I got caught up to wherever God's garden is. I was taken into the presence of the Lord. Now I want you to imagine something. He was there, we don't know how long, maybe a second or two, because he doesn't give us a whole bunch of details, but he's saying, I got caught up to the third heaven and I was there for a couple of seconds And I can't even describe what I saw. It was so mind-bogglingly amazing. That same heaven awaits for you. That same unutterable place, unspeakable place of beauty, of bliss, things that we, we can't, not only can we not understand them, they are such a mystery to our finite minds that when you think about it, It's where God is. And you see, we are so polluted with the Hollywood versions of heaven, with our storybook versions of heaven, with our nursery rhyme versions of heaven, with our concocted Sunday school stories of heaven. Now, God bless everyone who's ever tried to describe heaven, but they've fallen a touch short. God himself, in his infinite power, infinite wisdom and unlimited resources has had all eternity to build his home do you think he's got a few things in store for us that we can't understand there's no sense of finiteness to it it is infinite in every way shape or form imagine an omniscient omnipotent kind of mad scientist genius that's coming up with new ways every second to blow your mind. And the reason I relate it to you that way is think about, some of you in here were around when Disneyland opened. It opened on my birthday, my literal birthday. You know, when it first opened... I remember going, I think it was about six, 
And remember when Huck Finn's Island was actually Huck Finn's Island and you got to wear, you know, the raccoon caps and carry a flintlock and all that kind of stuff and you went out there and there were like four dudes dressed up like Native Americans? That was like mind-blowing. You know, and then you went and they did the Indian dances and you were like, I can't believe it. I think they're really Native American people. Except the fact they were whiter than I am. (laughs) But you thought for a second you got translated to a new dimension of space and time. And then as Disneyland kind of expanded and you ended up with things like Star Tours and Space Mountain and you know, remember when the World's Fair closed down and they ended up with the monorail, which now is being removed? It, it just kept morphing. If human beings can come up with the dinosaur diorama, you are now entering the primeval world. You know, you, you go through there as a child and you're like, oh. if Walt Disney could come up with that with some imagineering on napkins... Imagine what God can build with eternity. Think about it. Think about what awaits us in eternity. I don't even have any way to reference it. It was unutterable. God has chosen to give us almost zero information about heaven. But the information he's given us is you can't even understand it. You're just going to have to wait to see. So I'm pretty excited about it. Like, I don't know what it's going to look like. So if you ask me, I can't tell you. I'm going to take Paul's take on this. I can't even tell you what it was like, but I know it's going to be awesome. Amen? You're just going to have to wait. It's forbidden. Basically, Paul's saying I had, I had something better to boast about. He says, I, if I told you these things, you have no reference point in your mind to think about them. And it's like, I just gave you things that you do have reference points in your mind to think about, most of you. I, I gave you real places that you could think about. But now imagine that you're trying to describe something that's indescribable to someone who's incapable and you're giving them information that you don't have. It's an impossibility. And so Paul says, let me boast about this. Of such a one, I will boast, I will glory. He keeps using the third person here. So he's kind of standing back and he's looking objectively really at his own life. And he says, look, I got to go to heaven. You know anybody that went to heaven? You know anybody that's been caught up into the garden of God, the paradise? So if I wanted to boast, I'm thinking I'm trumping all y'all's things that you could talk about that you're so awesome in. I went to heaven. But I don't want to boast about that. I don't want to remind you that I got to go to heaven. And so now he really sounds like a fool. He is going to boast. He could have expounded on that amazing experience. Whatever his finite mind would have allowed him to do, he could have probably come up with some things that would blow us away. 
But he says, verse 7, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations. He said, so that I don't get a big, fat, spiritual head. Because I saw things that none of you have seen and none of you will see until you get to heaven. Check this out. You talk about a faithful fool. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. He said, basically, so I don't become so heavenly minded that I become no earthly good. God gave me a thorn. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. In other words, so amazing was Paul's little mini rapture to heaven that to keep him from getting a swollen spiritual head, God gave him a thorn in the flesh that the apostle Paul begged God to take away. I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Underline it, highlight it, put a page note in your Bible. God's grace is always sufficient for everyone. For Paul, for me, for you, for every person that's ever lived, no matter what you have gone through, no matter what you are going through, no matter what you will go through, And here's why. For my strength, God's strength, is made perfect in weakness. God allows into our lives the exact perfect measure of all things. Good, bad, and indifferent. Painful and wonderful all at the same time. And lest we be lifted up, you see, because that's what happens when you have a life that's without trial you start to think that you're just special. You're one of those people that you just have an idyllic life. And so very often, people who have that are the ones that end up with something like cancer. God doesn't want us to boast in our lives here or our existence here on this earth he wants us to look forward to what we do not know and have not seen the glories of heaven and so he never lets us get comfortable in this earth we're not to trust in it this isn't our home this is not where we belong this is a temporary place that we are going to exist for a very short period of time relative to to eternity and so God says look I don't want you boasting in what you do what you know what you have what you say your mind your body or anything else so there will be things that are going to be your weaknesses that are the sign that God loves you and he is perfecting you in those weaknesses so that you will look to his all sufficient grace And therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities. Put that on your resume. I'm a failure. 
I was a drug addict. I was an alcoholic. I messed up my marriage. I crashed a car and harmed so you know, put your infirmities, put them in view. I boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. This is, this is one of those passages of Scripture that if you get it right in your heart and your mind, it is transformative. Because here's what it lays waste. It lays waste to the thought which we often have as human beings that when bad things happen to us, it's because God is displeased. Because God hates us. Or, or maybe the, the light side of that, we're just the unlucky ones. This is the Apostle Paul. And he's basically saying to us, the reason my life came unglued was so that I could only boast in the sufficiency of Christ. The, the reason that these things happened in my life was not because God hates me, not because I don't have enough faith. They were to keep me always needing the grace of God, always crying out to the Lord, always saying, Lord, if you don't show up, I, I know I can't make it because the God we worship is the God of the impossible. The God we worship is the God who loves you more than you're capable of loving yourself. The God that we worship uses the worst things to make the best people. Amen? So don't fall into the trap that when bad things happen, that somehow God is either punishing you or he's displeased with you, Bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And in the life of the believer, God knows exactly the mix of those two ends of the spectrum. Never forget that. I would rather have the power of Christ knowing that one day what Paul just saw for maybe a nanosecond, we don't know is going to be our existence forever and ever and ever and ever. In other words, it's worth it. It's worth it. Whatever you have had happen in your life that's been painful and awful and difficult, it will all be worth it. God is perfecting you. And when you step into eternity, you're not going to be turning around looking at the earth. Well, you know, I, man, I miss my house in Lomita. <laughs> Which, by the way, we almost had a plane land on our roof. That was crazy. Didn't land on our roof, though. So God loves us still. <laughs> you, see how, you see how it can happen? You know, because you, we know, we, we go over to this barbecue place that actually got hit, and it, and it's like, you know, does God hate Joey and his barbecue? No. God loves all barbecue from all people. God invented barbecue. You know that, right? It's what they did in the temple courtyard. They grilled. They were the world's first grillers. Personally, I think they used hickory. And therefore, 
Notice this. Check this out. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. For Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, I'm at my strongest when God is at his strongest. And when he is at his strongest is when I am at my weakest. When I need the Lord the most, he is there. The power of God, Paul says, rests on me. The power that holds the whole universe together. The things that we don't know, he doesn't need to think about. Because he does know them. And Paul basically says, look, I I was so overwhelmed by what I saw. I, I, I want you to get what I'm saying here. We see this thorn, and and the danger for Paul was that he would just be exalted by this one moment's experience. It'd be like you you went to some sales convention thing, and somebody you know said five words, and you went out and you spoke those, and every time you did that, you you sold like. 40 cars or you know it's like miracles happened right in front of you speaking Dean shaking his head it's like yes something insane happens you're just like those five words just translate into magnanimous power You, you see you would think you already have everything you need you're just like you'd speak those five words and boom Another house, another vacation. You you see, you might start trusting in the five words instead of the one who spoke them to you. And the same is true for us as believers. Sometimes we start trusting in what we know about God instead of God himself. And so to keep that from happening, the Lord leaves in play in our lives Infirmity and persecutions and difficulties and things we can't handle so that when those things come up, we turn to the Lord. We cry out to him. And so Paul uses this word, huper ariomai, which describes danger. But he said, the danger for me, this magnificent danger, this exaltation that might come upon me, is so probable, so likely that God had to leave something in my life so that I didn't rest in it. I didn't just go, well, I'm the guy that saw God. I'm the person that had this experience at church. You know, I've talked to people that they're relying so heavily on their past experience that they haven't talked to God in months. They haven't leaned on God in years. They haven't trusted God in the last decade for anything. Because one time they went to one message and they got one word from the Lord and, well, I'm just hanging on that word. No, we are to be bankrupt every single day and so greatly in need of the Lord that if he does not show up, we feel as though we're going to die. 
That's the victorious life of a believer. God, you have to show up. If you don't show up, I can't make it. If you don't take care of this, no one can. And so God leaves these thorns, this this work. He he says, look, I'm going to buffet you. And and that word, it doesn't translate well into English. It's kalafiso. And it means to pummel with a closed fist. So it's not like just a little wind blowing against you. It's having somebody beat you in the face until you are bloodied to a pulp. Sometimes God leaves things in our lives that beat us to a bloody pulp. And he says, just so you get it, he uses the word scalope, which is the same as a spear or a lance. It was a a metal, there was a wooden object, excuse me, a stake, basically is like you were Dracula and Van Helsing showed up and shoved a stake in you. It was not a little splinter. You were getting beat in the face. And then someone stuck a piece of wood through your body. That's what was going on with Paul. It was so painful. It's like he couldn't, uh, what do I do? My eyes are closed from the beating already. I don't even know how to flinch. People often dumb this passage down to make it kind of seem like, well, Paul was just kind of going through a little thing. You know, he kind of had a little, had a thorn in the flesh. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a thorn. See, that's not what it says in the original language. It was not something off a rose bush. It was a stake through his heart. He was in the octagon with an MMA fighter blindfolded. Does it make a little more sense now? He said, God allowed me to be beat to a bloody pulp and a stake driven through my heart so that I would not be exalted beyond measure. Now, so when you think about it, how many of us can relate to having something that we would call a stake that just went right through our heart? Something that has beaten us to a bloody pulp to where we don't know we can even get up in the morning. Paul's saying, that happened to me so that I wouldn't trust in my past experience as an apostle. If that happened to Paul, a man who by all shake of the imagination had given everything he had, I think we can also count on having a few things in our lives that are going to be painful, hurtful. And so Paul glories in the thorns but I want you to notice something the first thing he says is God's grace is sufficient for me God's grace is sufficient for me my sufficiency is in Christ that grace was not just sent to him that grace was seized by him and I want you to notice the slight difference when I say that God's grace was sent to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But I also have to seize that grace. I've got to walk in that grace. I've got to let that grace soak into the fiber of my being. I have to seize the grace of God. Part of the problem that we have as the church is we receive the grace of God, but we don't seize the grace of God. Do you understand the difference? 
You see, I can know about God's grace. I can theologically even describe it to you. I can tell you that I'm saved by grace through faith, but am I seizing the grace? And the picture is this. I so need the grace of God that if there were anything in my life where the grace was going to be tested, I'm hanging on to the grace and the grace will have to drag me away because I can't do without the grace of God. It is sufficient for everything. It's not just kind of something I know about. It's something I live in and for. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, you you overemphasize grace. How can you overemphasize the grace of God? We're saved by it. We're kept by it. And one day we're going to heaven because of it. I seize the grace of God. I will never stop seizing the grace of God. It is my daily need. It is my daily sufficiency. I need God's grace in my life. And so he says, my strength is made perfect in my weakness. And the word there for strength is dunamis. That's the usual word for God's strength, his mightiness, if you want to look at it that way. It's a dynamic power. It's kinetic energy. It's the the bomb of God, if you want to look at it that way. If God could explode on you, he would do it through his dynamic power. The dynamic power of God is found in the grace of God. The dynamic power of God is not in some new experience. It's not in you howling in tongues. It isn't in you raising up the dead. The dynamic power of God is found in his all-sufficient grace. That's where the power rests. And without the grace of God, you cannot have the power of God. And so he says, look, rest in my grace. If you want the power of Christ to rest on you, then you have to rest in his grace. He says, look, I I, I so want you to get this. That he accepted this infirmity and he did so gladly. He's going to ask God, look, can you please take this from me? The same number of times that Peter denies Jesus. The same number of times that Satan tries to afflict Jesus. Three times Paul says, look, can you please get rid of this thorn? But because that thorn was the connection with God's grace, God says, you need it. And Paul cries out, then it's sufficient for me. Now I want you to see the results of being God's fool and resting in his grace. Because see, people call me silly for resting in the grace of God. I've had people say the same things to me that they've said to the apostle Paul. You're nuts. You're crazy. You really believe that the son of God came to this earth and died on the cross for you, an individual sinner. Yes, I do. Just want to be clear. Yes, I do. I believe that God so loved me that were I the only person ever born, Jesus would have come and died for me personally. Well, that's crazy talk. Rational people go, You're, you, God doesn't love you. If there is a God, he couldn't love you that much. I mean, look at you. 
I don't even like you. Why would God love you? Well, there's some pretty powerful results of being God's fool. That power enabled Paul to overcome the pain. Anybody need to overcome some pain tonight? The power of God enabled Paul to overcome pain. Not just physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain, the pain of deep hurt and rejection. Verse 10 says, infirmities. Anybody ever felt infirm? It means to be without strength. That's what infirmity means. It means to have zero strength in that area. Have you ever gotten to the end of who you are? That's where you meet God's grace. That's the power of being a fool for Christ. That's what happens when you're so needy for the grace of God that you say, God, only you can get me through this time of pain. It also enabled Paul to overcome the provocations, the reproaches. Anybody ever been falsely accused? Anybody ever been slighted because you're a Christian? Any of you ever experienced people disliking you? Paul says, the reason I could stand in those moments when the whole world turned on me is because I was resting in the grace of God. The power of being a fool for God. How about you don't have everything you need? We would call them deprivations or privations, things that you need that you don't have. Anybody got that going on? Paul says, the reason I can take pleasure in not having those necessities, being deprived of the things I need is because I'm resting in the grace of God. He is my sufficiency in my deprivation. How about persecution? Yet one more thing comes into view. When people come against you for the king and for the kingdom, when you pay a price for being a believer, when you lose that advancement, when you lose that position, when you are denied those things that should come to you your way simply because you are a child of God, because you stand for righteousness, when people flee, when they don't want anything to do with you, when you are persecuted because you're a Christian, when your friends like they did to Jesus cannot tarry with you even one hour. Paul says the answer to that is God's all-sufficient grace. And Paul says, this is how I overcome every problem. All problems, every distress. You see, because there's all kinds of distresses. Distress is the distressedness is the active result of external oppression. 
It distresses you. Any of you know about distressed furniture? You take a brand new piece of furniture and you beat it with a hammer and chains and nails and you make it look old. When you are distressed, something that is new is made old quickly. That's what distressing does to us as human beings. Distressing things take what should be new in our lives and makes it look like it's old. It's you being old before your time because of what you suffered in your mind and on your body and, and emotionally and as, as things press in on you. Paul says the reason that I am not giving in to distress is because the grace of God rests on me. I'm trusting in his sufficiency. You see, that's the power, if you will, of being a fool for God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, when the world's hubris and hurt comes my way, I rest in the grace of God. When people take things away from me that I need, I rest in the grace of God. When the world persecutes me and falsely accuses me, I rest in the grace of God. When problems come, I take pleasure in those things. I go to that narrow place gladly because I'm resting in the grace of God. How important is the grace of God in light of those things? Because I just described to you in a very short period of time virtually the substance of everything that we face negatively in our lives. I don't care whether it's your mind or your body or provision. These are the major things. And Paul says, when the major things come, I rest in the all-sufficient grace of God. When the stuff comes that tries to destroy me, I rest in the all-sufficient grace of God. Church, what was the secret to Paul's power? And it sounds nuts. It sounds crazy. When the financial problem comes, I rest in the grace of God. When the problem with your children comes, I rest in the grace of God. He doesn't say he doesn't do anything. He says, at the end of the day, when I put my pillow on my head, I trust that God has this. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. His right hand is not short that it cannot save. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hands who are his. He's resting in the grace of God. He's saying, look, what can the world do to me? If they beat me again, so what? I go to heaven. Now you talk about sounding foolish. But he's really saying, this world has nothing to offer that I would ever contemplate trading for the all-sufficient grace of God. I don't know about you. But I see a man who learned to let go of everything and trust God. He didn't struggle. He yielded to what God allowed in his life. He didn't trust his strength. In fact, he resorted to his weaknesses. He knew that God wouldn't let him down. He just knew And here's the thrust of this message. 
for I have become a fool in boasting. He said, I don't even know why I said these things. Verse 11, you've compelled me, for he ought to, ought to have been commended by you, for nothing was behind the most eminent of the apostles, nothing I, and, and, and though I am nothing, he says, look, the apostles, nothing. Me, nothing. I don't care who you talk about as, as far as a human being is concerned. Why are we busy concerning ourselves with what other people think is basically what he's saying. This is crazy. Verse 12, for truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to the other churches? And then he just throws this intense bit of sarcasm and even some irony at them except that I myself was not burdensome to you forgive me that wrong he says look the only thing I've done is told you about Jesus the only works that I've done was to tell you about Jesus everything that's happened to you is so that you could know the grace of God the signs were so you could know the grace of God. The wonders, the terras were so you could know the grace of God. The simeons, the signs, the dunamis, this is all so you could know the grace of God. I really didn't need to say these things. If you could just look at it from that perspective, the only thing that you heard out of me was I'm going to turn you back to the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, the secret to Paul's power was in the fact that he knew that he could rest in the grace of God. The power of God, the might of God, the provision of God, all these things that were taken away that he lacked, he knew that in Christ he lacked actually none of those things. That God would always come through. And so for us, so I was reading this passage, and I, I, I don't, and it doesn't happen all the time, but I just found myself reading these thirteen verses over and over and over, and actually praying a prayer of repentance for my own life. I was like, God, how many times have I trusted you when I'm being persecuted? I mean, really trusted you. Or when there's been times of leanness instead of fatness, how many times did I actually say, my all-sufficient God's going to come through? And I mean to put no burden on anyone, but I want you to pray through those things. Pray through this passage, maybe the remainder of this week, and just ask yourself, is there some area where God, alone by his grace, is insufficient? Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your parenting skills. Maybe there's some area of life that you're holding back from saying, God, you are sufficient. And if there is, let it go. Because he is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for us, for you, for me, and everyone else. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close. One of the pastors is going to be up front and available for prayer. I want to just pray over you.
because God is that good. Father, Father, I, I again just, I want to say in front of my family, my brothers and sisters, I'm sorry for the times when I don't trust you, when your grace is insufficient for me. And Lord, it's certainly not as often as it used to be, but every once in a while that rears its ugly head. And I pray that you'd help me to be still before your throne. And I pray for us, Lord, as brothers and sisters and joint heirs in Christ. Lord, that we could say with the Apostle Paul, if you allow us to be shipwrecked. God, if you, if you allow us to be beaten. Lord, if you allow us to suffer, as Paul will say to the church at Rome, the loss of all things, everything, that we would still say, your grace, God, is sufficient for us. We thank you for that grace purchased by the blood of the Lamb. For that indictment nailed to the cross, the weight of our sins removed forever. For the glimpse that Paul got of heaven, Lord, give us a heavenly longing. We love you, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Lord, thank you that you've loved us with an undying love, and that love will never end. We bless your holy name. In Jesus' name.